I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So my interview today is with Ian Gill. He is a journalist. I was going to say he's a former journalist. He's nothing of the sort. He's uh, deeply involved with uh, discourse media. He's an author. He's a writer. He's a thinker. He's a he's a social change guru. Hey, Ian, can I call you that? Uh, he's written a book called No News is Bad News, Canada's Media Collapse and What Comes Next. This is, uh, you, you're going to love Ian. You're going to fall in love with him. We, we talked about uh, pretty much, you know, we, we talked about pretty much everything. We talked about what, what the role of, of good journalism is really all about. It's about investigating. It's about informing. It's about inspiring. It's how, it, you know, journalism can be, uh, Ian says, a, a, a noble uh, craft. We talked about opportunities and, and, and why he's still hopeful. We talked about uh, how, how in the 21st century, we're still using these 20th century, 20th century institutions and solutions to, to, to look at the problems, you know, global problems around the world. So um, this is about listening. It's about intelligent collaboration. It's about paying attention. So um, yeah, please stay tuned um, for uh, uh, my next interview coming right up with Ian Gill, davidpecklive.com uh, for more face-to-face interviews. We are coming up on our 300th interview, I think, fairly soon. And Hot Docs is around the corner and TIFF is coming up in the fall. Um, You can find out more about my own writing and my my public speaking there. Also, uh, through patreon.com, you can choose to support what I'm doing with face-to-face as well. So, And don't forget rabble.ca for more uh, podcasts coming soon to a theater near you. Ian Gill, coming right up. No news is bad news. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a very special guest here today uh, with us, an author, a journalist, um, somebody who's clearly quite concerned about social change uh, in, in its various forms. Ian Gill is here with us today to talk about his new book, No News is Bad News. Ian, thanks for joining us today. 
It's great to be here, David. So is it really uh, uh, as bad as you say? The subtitle of your new book uh, is Canada's Media Collapse and What Comes Next. Uh, well, it's worse. Okay, <laughs> okay. great. Um, great start, Ian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the book I wrote um, through uh, some research I did in 2015 when I was a senior fellow at the McConnell Foundation, um, and uh, they uh, allowed me to go and roam the world a bit and think about what was happening in media, but specifically Canadian media. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of the book is a chronicle of just how bad it's gotten. And you know, the thing about books, the timeline on publishing a book is uh, you know, by the time it goes to the printers, there's a few weeks or months that intervene before it's on the shelves. Um, and in those few weeks and months, um, things just kept getting worse. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, and, and in fact, you continue to in many ways. So um, you know, it's, a, it's a picture, a snapshot in time of things that were pretty dire in Canadian media and frankly, uh, I don't think it's improved that much and possibly have gotten worse. The subtitle of the book, as you say, though, is Canada's Media Collapse and What Comes Next. And the pivot I tried to make, you know, because you can chronicle the decline of an industry like our media in this country uh, till the cows come home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it just becomes a sort of funeral dirge. Uh, right. What I tried to do was kind of pivot off that and say, well, it can't all be bad and maybe right. there's some good things going on. And so I spend some of the book at least trying to think about that and and there are some glimmers of hope it's still a pretty sad uh, landscape out there in this country and frankly around the world and then the advent of the Trump White House is just sort of you know dramatically sort of exaggerates what's going wrong um, around the world in terms of public discourse generally this is not um, just this is not just a Canadian problem this is it's this is, not a yeah, Canadian right, problem right. at all no. I loved I love the book by the way Ian and uh, <laughs> I have you. I have a, a family of journalists that I'm attached to so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to be going to be forwarding out not only to my listeners but to some family members too oh, uh, Ronald Wright says a blast quote a blast of fresh air through the stale half empty corridors of Canadian journalism close quote it's a great quote um, speaking of quotes I'm going to read one from you uh, I'm going to read a couple probably throughout the book, but quote, how did things get so bad? Will they get worse? Should we even care anymore? And if so, what should we do about it? Someone once said that the environment is too important to leave to environmentalists, and the same should be said about journalism, close quote. Your, your, your subtitle kind of leaves us open for some solutions and hope, and you do get into that near the end of the book and sort of woven throughout, really, frankly. And it sounds to me like it's quite a bit of doom and gloom, but there is things that we can do there is a to-do list there is a way to 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 i don't know i guess affect some pretty significant change however incrementally um is journalism over in a sense is is it about people like myself who are posting on rabble.ca who are uh, getting out there and trying to interview people like you or you know has has uh, yeah like you say the fun- the funeral dirge is playing yeah well journalism is many things and so mm-hmm. you know i think we're some would say we're committing an act of journalism as we speak right. um, uh, by doing just what you're doing. Sure. Um, you know, journalism to me is, uh, there's a number of definitions for it, but, you know, I mean, essentially at its base, it's uh, um, practiced by people who are curious and who want right. to make sense of complexity and, nice. um, and have some skill at uh, you know, translating their curiosity into 
narratives that people will respond to and possibly even take action on the basis of. Um, and so when we're talking about social change, for instance, I mean, the social change doesn't happen really without um, narratives that people uh, are attracted to around why society should even change in the first place. And then, of course, you know, how people act upon those beliefs uh, is also sometimes um, a, a direct result of you know, multiple acts of journalism or multiple acts of storytelling and knowledge mobilization. Um, and in that area, journalism is in some ways the fastest and best way of moving ideas through the knowledge ecosystem um, and giving people an opportunity to select on them and decide they're going to act about this or that. Um, journalism in the conventional sense uh, isn't dead yet. Uh, frankly, journalism in the conventional sense, or as mostly practiced in this country through our sort of increasingly dull, pallid, and frankly, um, uh, you know, unpalatable hmm. newspapers, um, right. and through the sort of superficial, you know, airhead TV that we have and everything else. <laughs> I mean, yes. frankly, the sooner that dies, the better. Wow. You know, journalism, okay. journalism's practice has become corrupted over the years, and. Um, you know, I write in the book at one point about public interest journalism. Yes, I was going to ask um, you about that, yep. Well, and, and to me, all journalism should have the public interest at its core, but the fact that we even have to sort of qualify what uh, I talk about a bit in the book and what I'm now doing at my current company, Discourse Media, that the fact we even have to qualify that as public interest journalism is sort of offensive in some ways. So, so what, is, Ian, what, what, is, what is public interest journalism? Is this, is well, this... it's, the notion, um, it's the notion that um, your journalism is a public service. It exists right, in right. the public interest. Um, but, of course, uh, you know, that's true if you're serving up material that is um, actionable or hmm. um, motivating in some way around issues of public concern. If you're just... Um, putting cat pictures on a website in order to attract uh, eyeballs, in order to attract advertisers, um, I don't conflate that with journalism. Right. And unfortunately, you know, um, the, the populists that are you know, running half the world now um, partly are there because of the descent of um, journalism into you know, populist tropes that, frankly, we could do without. I don't consider um, uh, a lot of journalistic practice over the last couple of decades has been, frankly, very much in the public interest. Uh, and I think that's what... So, so the opportunity here is actually an interesting one because journalism's kind of trust base has been somewhat eroded and, uh, frankly, the business model for it's been somewhat eroded. And partly, the uh, I think, people have been offended by some of the journalistic practice over the last couple of decades. Um, and so there's actually a huge opportunity here to say, well, okay, uh, let's have the journalism we want right. um, rather than just this tripe that's thrust in our throats. And so I, I'm quite excited about the potential to sort of almost redefine what journalism is. Is it a, is it a two-sided coin, Ian? Is it is it public interest, corporate interest, or is it a way more nuanced than that? Oh, I mean, corporate interest has always played a huge role, and that's actually one of the things that's so problematic in Canada. I mean, Canada, almost more than anywhere else in the world, has this just appallingly high level of ownership concentration. Hmm. Uh, and so so Post Media, for instance, owns you know, most of the papers across the, the, the country that you know, the Toronto Star Corp doesn't own, you know, and, uh, and then you know, between them, they own a whole bunch of 
silly little sort of metro dailies sure. and your know, dreadful you know, weeklies out in the boonies and everything else. I mean, the, um, these are terrible products, but they have such a stranglehold on the concentration uh, on the ownership of these products. It's very hard for anything to kind of come into the market against them. Um, and you know, as we've seen with post media, they're just slashing um, journalists. I mean, more than ten thousand journalists have lost their jobs over the last few years, and so. Uh, that's that's actual capacity on the ground. These are eyes and ears and minds that should be attuned to the public function and public discourse of our country that have just gone silent. You, uh, so that's a problem, and that's that's a that's a corporate problem. You talk about um you talk about blame and 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 I guess uh, responsibility, I suppose, to some degree. And you 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 reference investors and technology and owners and regulators and so on. You're not a huge fan of the CBC, is that right? Well, I worked for the CBC for seven I, years, and I, I, I actually I loved it. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, <laughs> you made me, you, you made me laugh out loud a couple of times uh, with some <laughs> of your commentary on CBC. That's for sure, and I'm sure, and 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 I guess you know a lot of people would share in in some of those frustrations. I guess maybe that's what it is. Well, a lot of people at the CBC share in those frustrations. <laughs> right, I mean, the CBC, right. CBC is a national asset. There's no doubt about that. Yes, yes. Um, but there, and there are pockets in the CBC that do extraordinarily good work, and there's some really good people working there. But boy, you know, it's, uh, I mean, they're like miners down there, sort of several thousand feet under the ground with pit lamps, you know, trying to find a corner where they can do this work <laughs> in the group. Right. You know, um, right. and you know that's partly of the CBC, the big clunky organisation that's slow to change and everything sure. else. Sure. Sure. What's great about the CBC is we have this national, we we have these channels, if you will, that the CBC um, has developed. These kind of communications channels, um, which are a pub, piece of public infrastructure. You know, they are just you know the the CBC's reach and its ability to be in a number of communities in a number of ways is just as important to this country as having your pipes that run around, you know, such that you can be in your apartment or your house and turn on the tap and clean water comes out. Um, doesn't work for a lot of Aboriginal people in sure. this country, but sure. um, it's also just as important as having you being able to flick a switch and have your electric light come on. So that is actually a piece of public infrastructure that we have invested heavily in over the years as taxpayers. Um, and I think we should demand a lot more from, but I don't want to destroy the CPC. I mean, I think it is you know, one of the um, defining institutions of this country, but boy, could it do with a shakeup. Could, could it do with a shakeup? It kind of, kind of reminds me of the UN. I mean, a lot of the work I do, I, I hear about the, in fact, yesterday, a conversation with somebody in Toronto and former CBC guy, actually, interestingly enough, and he was, you know, kind of complaining about the UN, as I, as was I, and does some wonderful, marvelous, amazing things, but wow, uh, a shakeup is an understatement it could use with that's for sure. Um, well, and there's and there's sort of every sector in our society, frankly. I mean, I'm not an anarchist, but I mean, you know, um, people don't trust their institutions very much anymore. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm, mm. I think we sort of over romanticize perhaps the fact yes. that they ever had, but right, you know, in right. the sort of post-war era where there was this sort of rebuilding of the world. And, sort of sense of optimism around politics to some degree, and um, I'm not going to get all dewy-eyed about the good old days, but um, you know, Joshua Kipuramo, for instance, has written beautifully about the extent to which people, you know, we, we have these kind of essentially 20, 20th century institutions now that are trying to confront 21st century problems and right. doing a really bad job of it. Yeah. And so we actually need um, 
you know, I mean, it's not just the CDC that needs shaking up. It's we need sort of shake-ups across the board. And what we need is um, these institutions to be much more responsive to the geopolitics of sort of uh, world development and everything else. And, and part of the way to help that happen is to have really good journalism that holds them to account. I mean, that is the other real part of journalism's job, is not just to share hopeful narratives, but to actually, you know, um, to use the name of a film that came out a couple of years to use a spotlight sure. uh, on what's wrong. And, you know, that's an important role, which, again, if you take 10,000 boots off the ground or 20,000 boots, I guess, if most journalists wear you know, a shoe on both feet, um, you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, analytical journalistic capacity that's been removed from Canada uh, and isn't being replaced in a whole heck of a hurry, and that's a problem. I can't believe Donald Trump hasn't come up yet, by the way, but we'll we'll get to that soon, I'm sure. Um, so, quote... Uh, who, who was that, sorry? <laughs> Donald Trump, yes. Yeah, <laughs> nice, nice. Um, quote, our ability to help shape a culture of innovation and to advance transformative change in Canada is hobbled by the narrowness of a national conversation that is constantly circumscribed by economic and political forces that are the antithesis of a transparent, engaged, and fully functioning democracy, close quote. That's in your introduction. I mean, that's, glo yeah. that's gloves on to me, Ian, <laughs> in, in a really good way. And, and, and so I want to talk about some of that responsibility. I mean, we can, we can, we can point fingers at the CBC and at the government and Harper and, and, and cuts and all that. What about, what about me? What about me as somebody who, who, who has read, you know, and I want to talk about Ben Bagdiki and some media monopoly as well. Uh, you, it's clearly played a huge role in your life, but at what role, at what level am I responsible for, for, well, the, for this mess we find ourselves in? So, um, I mean, that takes a fair bit of unpeeling, uh, but I have been <laughs> yes. doing, I've been doing a lot of research on you and I think your social habits are really to blame. Um, That's no, <laughs> no, I, yeah. I think you could be um, right about that. Yeah. Well, I think all of our social habits are partially to blame. No, I think that the, um, the issue is to some degree, do Canadians, does anybody in the world, um, but do Canadians just to narrow to the subject of this book, do they actually think that journalism important is important and do they right. think that um, journalism should happen? Um, there's a lot of uh, Canadians, especially those in power, who would be quite content to have things stay the way they are or get even worse because you know they're not under the scrutiny that they deserve and they can get away, if not with murder, they can get away with pretty much everything up to, any, uh, up to that. Uh, and so... Um, Canadians have to sort of look in the mirror a little bit and think about whether or not they think journalism performs a, an important public function. And, you know, the really critical thing is, if so, are they prepared to pay for it? Now, they right, pay right. for the C... We, we pay for the CBC now, that's true. But the CBC is a thing, and it's got its own way of doing things, and it's not the only way of doing things. Um, we are seeing that Canadians pay... Um, less than people in most um, developed countries for online journalism, for instance. They just, you know, they are happy to consume online journalism. They're not happy to pay for it. Well, I'm working with a company now, Discourse Media, whose job is to produce good quality online journalism. And we are still in our test phase and our kind of startup phase. So we haven't asked anybody to pay for it yet. But I worry very deeply that if we do, you know, we may be a bit... Um, uh, humbled by the response. Uh, 
So, and that's a that's a conundrum for uh, every jurisdiction. You know, the New York Times is trying to find more inventive ways to get people to pay for its digital products because people are turning away from the newspaper. Um, you know, the Guardian is doing the same thing across Europe. There are people looking to kind of monetize mm. um, journalism in the digital age. Uh, so, you know, Canadians, I guess, you know, if, if there's a blame for anything. I think they're com- they can consider themselves complicit in the decline of journalism if they feel that they want journalism, but they're not prepared to pay for it. Nah, I don't think that's really exercising much social responsibility, frankly. Are you, are you, um, hmm, you know, you talked about getting dewy eyed. Are you the kind of guy who, who, who sits down on Saturday morning or every morning, frankly, with a coffee and, uh, and, a, and a newspaper? Uh, I, well, I, I, I personally like, the heart. I'm old enough to like the 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 the, the newsprint, the smell, the feel, uh, everything about the experience. Uh, that's probably I can blame my dad for that. But yeah. uh, is that is that completely going by the wayside? Are we going to see no. kind of a return to that? Do you think in some way? Uh, you know, as we continue to seemingly and I use the word in italics, consume more news. Yeah. Well, I uh, I have a confession to make, which is that this morning when I woke up, I went and got my Globe and Mail. Uh, and sat down with that and did the crossword. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, nice. you know, so that puts me into the sort of Pleistocene era or, era or something. I don't know. I mean, I realize I'm fairly dinosaurish, but, um, but I do that. Uh, and yet I am right on the verge of canceling my subscription to the Global Mail because I find it infuriating how poorly edited it is and how, you know, how thin it is compared to the product that I was used to getting. Um, but, uh, you know, and I say in the book at one point, um, I quote the head of Axel Springer, the big publisher in uh, Germany, who said that he thinks within 10 years, and this was two years ago, um, newspapers will be you know, as rare as kind of vinyl records. Now, vinyl records have had a comeback. Exactly. No, but so I think we'll have some newspapers in some places some of the time. Um, uh, and I don't even necessarily think it's just you know, aging, dying boomers that are going to... Um, keep newspapers going. I mean, newspapers are a thing. Everyone um, heralded the, the death of books when yeah, sure. you know, I, e-books came in and everything else. Um, I think the biggest threat to books is actually Netflix. It's not you know, e-books, but in any event, um, uh, you, I don't think we've seen um, the end of newspapers necessarily, but I do feel that people need to um, start taking digital media more seriously and digital media needs to be more serious about what it's offering to Canadians or to people around the world uh, about you know as, as a platform for this public discourse to be continued. I I'm slowly trying to read more and more online news. Uh, iPad, you know, I've got four or five sources that I go to pretty much every day for at least fifteen or twenty minutes. One of the things that frustrates me, and maybe this is just you know my old fartishness, but I don't like the format and maybe you know we can argue for well we don't have to argue but a, a paper newspaper is a form of censorship because somebody chose what went into it what i find kind of frustrating about the home page of bbc or al jazeera or cbc is it's i don't know it just it's it, it it doesn't offer the variety that i need to see does that make any sense is that is that am i yeah. am i just showing up you know my own laziness here uh, no 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 absolutely not you know it's just i was having a conversation uh Yesterday, I had discourse about this with some of our... I mean, you know, I'm the old guy in the room there. Everybody else is half my age, and they're brilliant, and they're all digital natives, and that's all they do. 
But you know, the conversation we were having yesterday is that virtually none of the young people that I work with uh, who are sort of digital first in terms of their their thinking and their reading and where they get their information. Almost none of them go to a homepage anymore. So nobody actually. So you're showing your age right. by the very fact that you will go to the homepage of the BBC or the homepage of Al Jazeera. Um, uh, there sort of are no go-to's anymore mm. because uh, what's really starting to happen is because largely driven by social media, but also just generally the way people are starting to consume, um, you know, uh, and 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 the way that actually good intelligent distributors of information now are seeing their their role as sort of curating product to people. Um, uh, there's sort of more push than pull happening now. So um, especially because of the sort of computer algorithms that will drive people to certain places because they've been seen to go there before and that's their sort of um, product of choice. Uh, I could spend an entire day now uh, consuming different articles and um, short videos, if you will, or mm -hmm. audio product and everything else sure. without ever really going to a homepage at all. Just because of you know, how I show up on social media and everything else, I am sent, I'm sent as opposed to going looking for more information than I could possibly consume in a right. day. And I right. think that's where the change is occurring. And that's where some opportunity, uh, I believe, uh, arises in terms of... Um, monetizing sort of distribution um, because it's so hard to monetize the production of content. At what point, though, do I, as the reader, Ian, just get, I mean, it's I'm exhausted by that, aren't I? I mean, I, I just I just uh, unsubscribed from one one news agency this morning again on my, you know, too, too much in my inbox. I'm, I, there's, yeah. too much, there's too much noise out there, Ian. How the heck do I do I filter it? I kind of rely on a good editor to do that for me. You know? Well, and that's that. This, so I think in the end we need to be disciplined um, hmm. as consumers about you know, what we sort of let in through the door. Sure. Um, one of the problems, though, and this has been sort of studied, and it's it's particularly being debated in the context of you know, what happened uh, in the White House uh, in the last few months um, in American politics is. Um, if we just allow the sort of algorithms to be, you know, uh, dictating what we get, um, then what does happen is you set up a sort of an echo chamber. So you're interested in social change and maybe social innovation. You're interested in international development and everything else. You click on a bunch of stories about that, and before you know it, all you're getting in your sort right. of feed right. is stuff that sort of preaches to your choir That's of good. one. Yep. Um, and then suddenly you are not hearing... I mean, one of the sort of exquisite pleasures, you know, is, um, you know, uh, uh, one of the few exquisite pleasures of getting the Globe, for instance, um, because it doesn't contain much pleasure anymore for me, <laughs> is actually occasionally you, you see a Margaret Wenty column that you just make yourself read because she's just so awful. Um, and so... And that what that does is it provokes you to think about why you think she's so awful or her ideas are so, to me, offensive. And that's a good thing because right. otherwise right. you're just sort of, you're bathing in some tepid liberal sort of bathwater, which, you know, um, everybody else is sort of uh, bathing with the same ideas. And, you know, you never get a shock to your own system, you know. So, um, and that's a problem. I mean, that's why occasionally, I mean, I would never buy it, but occasionally if I'm traveling across the country, I pick up a, 
free copy of the National Post, you know, because actually some of their writers are really good writers, and most of what they write about drives me crazy. Yeah. You know? So, um, so that's a good thing, uh, and I don't know if anybody's really come up yet with a curation that is uh, that sort of has. The, the cross dresses, if you will, right, um, right, yeah, and I think that's a bit of a problem. You, you know, your book is, you know, so much. It, it, it's about, in a way, I love, you know, um, how you know the book's about news, it's about journalism, it's about media, et cetera. But it's about so much more than that, it seems to me. And 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 you know, we've got social change and democratic institutions. We're talking about censorship and ownership and corporatism and so on. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read another quick quote here, and and I just I, I so so love this here where. Um, you say this incessant quote, this incessant echo uh, about the need for economic growth is the meta narrative that has shaped the contours of the developed world's behavior since the birth of the first baby boomer. It is how perversely so many governments are able to gain and maintain power by preaching economic austerity as a virtue, close quote. I mean, this is not so much about news and media anymore, is it? This is sort of your comment on the global economic gap, <laughs> if if I can, you know, take my level, my interests, and, and sort of impose those on what you're doing here. Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. and I mean, I look at the Global Mail every day, as I said, and I, to me, it's kind of big oil telling me what it wants the world to look like. So I, that's, <laughs> that's my awesome. first filter um, right. for the globe. Um, that's so and, funny. Uh, and you know the National Post, you know, looks like just small-minded, you know, nasty people. You, um, that's their view of the world, and and you know, so you you have to sort of filter immediately what you're getting. But but no, I mean, our um, this sort of political narrative and development narrative is uh, now well trodden, and it's well supported by large corporate interests who control media, who have a certain view of the way the world works, and they want to continue to promulgate that view and stay in power. Um, and that's not conspiracy theory or anything else. It's just true. I mean, if there's a great book that the University of Winnipeg, I think, produced called Seeing Red, which was a book about um, the complicit nature of our media over mm. the century and a half of development of Canada that excluded Aboriginal people right. or derided them or completely well, marginalized. And you get into that in quite a quite a big way in the book. Yeah, and so I mean that those are deliberate acts of omission and commission that our media have taken because it's been in their interest to to create and sustain a narrative which is in their interest. And so that's why who owns media um is just as important today as it's ever been. Going to Ben Bagdikian's groundbreaking book in the eighties, The Media Monopoly, um, you know, that's where I was inspired to sort of pay attention to the fact that you know who owns um, the the pulpit um, right, right. Uh, is very much a function about who then gets to stand behind it and what they broadcast to the adoring masses, and that's as true today as has ever been. Um, but the other thing is that you. Know, uh, and to you who have an interest in um, international development, and I'm sure some of your listeners do too, or who are interested in the work of philanthropic foundations, for instance, who are supposed to be funding your know, change makers and people sure. out on the edge of you know, new social policy, new thinking and everything else, um, or even to the UN, which commissions a massive amount of research every year, uh, or the World Bank you know, uh, into issues of public importance and everything else. 
how does that get mobilized? How does any of that analysis and that sort of creative thinking um, get mobilized in such a way that um, your real change can happen because people get excited about? So it's not journalism isn't just or shouldn't be just about all the bad things going on in the world. Partly sure. at discourse media, what we're trying to say is journalism can shine the light on solutions. Nice. Um, yeah. You know, the Vancouver yeah, Foundation out here. Um, They've gone open source on their uh, research that they support through their grants at the Vancouver Foundation, and so uh, which I think is fascinating. And so they basically said, we're supporting all this uh, innovative thinking and work through our foundation grants, and that should be publicly available. So that's a great move on their part. And what we're talking to them about is, well, how do you mobilize that in the public sphere? Um, and how do you get these good ideas? You know, there are mm. solutions to homelessness. There are sort of better practices about, you know, the opioid crisis in one city than another. How do you share those? How do you mobilize hopeful knowledge? Mm. How do you mobilize solutions in the public realm? Well, that should be partly the job of journalism. And then, uh, then you're serving the public interest. Uh, and that's I great. think that, uh, that's, a that's, I think there's great opportunity there, um, and I think it's also a way to rebuild the public's trust in journalism if we're actually helping the people make sense of a complex world in a way that gives them something they can act positively on. Did, didn't you say in the, the, the book at some point, Ian, that this was not a, uh, and this is going to be my pecky and paraphrase here, but not a battlefield report, but, but, but kind of a, a, a search for solutions? Absolutely, and I think that's you know that's what we that's what we need right now. I mean, the the fact is that um, our traditional media, you know, the, the jigs up. You know, uh, right. this stuff just doesn't work, and people don't want it anymore. And so, where I think the opportunity is is not to run around you in the digital realm trying to find a way to. Uh, well, they're not paying for that anymore. Let's sort of tweak the product product a little bit, or let's just find a way to con people into paying for stuff in a different way. I think there's a kind of an opportunity for a root and branch rethink of what journalism's mm. purpose is. Um, and you, know, if we are successful at doing that, and if we can find a way to have journalism show up in a way that doesn't offend people's intellect or offend their sensibilities. Um, and actually gives you, you know, I was just writing some notes yesterday. I thought, what does journalism really mean? We, we investigate, we inform, and my third eye was we inspire. Mm. And that's mm. what we should be doing. I mean, at the moment, we're sort of not really investigating very much. Uh, we're misinforming for the most part. And, um, you know, and we add, and, and, and we despair people. So <laughs> I think if we can flip that on its head, and get back to what we're good at, which is to do investigations. They don't all have to be gotcha moments. Just right. investigate interesting things in interesting ways, inform people with a narrative that's compelling and mobilizing and appeals to their sense of agency and appeals to their desire to live in a better world and help have a better world. If we can inspire them to then act, and also, I would have to say, uh, inspire them to pay for the journalism they're getting. <laughs> right, right. Self-serving. Yeah. Um, no, that's great. Then there, may, then there may be a sweet spot there that is right in front of our eyes. When are you going to be uh, teaching your uh, your ne your first course or your next course on on <laughs> the journalism of tomorrow, Ian? That's what I want to know. What I love what I love about about right right through the book, the thread is there. You're you you know you you talk about boneheaded executive producers. You're you're not you're not afraid to. Sort 
sort of call things the way you see them. And yet I, I see this, uh, I, I see this really marvelous positive thread, you know, this, this, like you say, this isn't a battlefield report. This is about solution. This is discourse media. This is what you're now currently doing, that there is hope here, that there is agency, that there is a way to get involved and to make a difference. And I, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a serious critique. And, uh, but, but at the same time, it's a, it's called action. And, and, and for me, your introduction was lovely because you can so tell that you have this affectionate, I think affection, can I use the word affection for journalism, for telling, oh, for telling a story? Completely. And I think that, you know, I look around the people I'm working with right now and um, other peers and colleagues and everything else. And, um, you know, there's some show ponies and some, you know, sort of pumped up, you know, pseudo rock star type journalists and all the usual, you know, stuff that goes along with that. But most of these people are very serious about uh, using their intellect and their talents and their storytelling skills Mm -hmm. and learning these skills and expanding upon them. Um, you know, because they believe in a better Canada, you know, uh, and, right. um, that's not something to be disdained. And I think we've, we've cheapened our own brand as generally as journalists by, um, somewhat being cowed by these publishers who've just sort of, you know, destroyed the product that we work for around us. Um, and, uh, also, you know, I mean, there's plenty of lazy journalists out there, just like there's probably the odd auto worker who doesn't tighten the nut on the wheel quite enough. Sure, um, of course, of course. Yeah. But, um, no, I think it's, uh, it's a, it, it can be a noble craft. Um, and, uh, I think that actually the other trend that I'm seeing that I'm really excited about in journalism is that um, the emphasis on being first and having a scoop and you know right. being, yep. and competing and beating the other guy sure. to the story. Yep. These days, content is everywhere, so it's hard to have a scoop about a car accident because the first person who you know, reports on a car accident is the person who's in the car accident <laughs> turns on their iPhone. That's, yeah, it's so, true. You know, yeah. So uh, that notion you want to be first at the scene or anything good. else is less important now. What I'm seeing is a trend towards um, really, really good, intelligent collaborations between Mm. media makers Mm. uh, because in the end, the story is the most important thing. And if we can figure out ways to collaborate to get more stories of importance to Canadians out on more channels uh, so that they find it wherever they're at, um, I think there's real power in that, and we're having conversations with some of the larger media makers, including the CBC and other uh, institutions across the country. We did a collaborative project with McLean's last year. Nice. I mean, I love I love know, the notion of intelligent collaboration. It's it's marvelous. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's the only way that we can both uh, cover the ground we need to cover, but also restore some public faith. In, sure. Um, in journalism, and I think that's an exciting trend that we wouldn't have even thought about 10 years ago. So it was so hard for me to pick any quotes out of your book because there's so many, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up our interview here now. Sadly, maybe we can do a part two in the future, Ian. I would really love to do that. But quote, old, slow, and lazy doesn't win the race. It's beyond urgent that we clear the decks and make way for the journalism of tomorrow because the journalism of today is fast becoming yesterday's news, close quote. Um, I, 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 I hope everybody reads this book, uh, even, even those who read the National Post. <laughs> well, they should read it most of all. <laughs> it's so funny. 
Uh, no news is bad news. Canada's media collapse and what comes next. Ian, thank you for your time and your generosity and, and your sense of humor and, and your insights. I, I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's, it's been a great, uh, great interview for me. Well, a great pleasure to do it, Tim. Thanks for your interest. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.